Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me. And, uh, of course, I want to uh, say hello to uh, our many new listeners who have tuned in along the Radio Maria network. And, uh, of course, we have an audience in the Philippines joining us now, and, of course, Australia, uh, Ireland, uh, the United States of America, and Canada. So, uh, again, a very good, sizable crowd, I like to say, listening to Archbishop Sheen. And, you know, I think of the numbers that Archbishop Sheen garnered in his uh, television years, where 30 million people uh, tuned in each week to watch him on television. And uh, during his radio years, there were 5 million people that uh, tuned into the radio. So uh, Fulton Sheen is used to these good numbers, and um, it's just a real blessing to have this worldwide outreach uh, with Radio Maria. So uh, we are blessed. We truly are. All right, uh, we're kind of uh, getting ready for Lent, and uh, it's just around the corner. And so uh, Fulton Sheen has been teaching us our catechism about uh, sin and penance. And hopefully many of us will make a good holy confession during the season of Lent. And so uh, today we will have Fulton Sheen give us, um, again, his uh, explanation of what penance is. And so uh, we will share that catechism lesson with you. Uh, But we'll entertain you a little bit at the beginning here with uh, one of his television shows uh, from Life is Worth Living. And uh, the topic that he was discussing uh, back then, and of course we'll enjoy today, is uh, this question. Is self-expression always wrong? Now think about that for a moment. Is self-expression always wrong? Well, I will let Fulton Sheen explain that to us. So uh, may I invite you to just sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives us this reflection on, is self-expression always wrong? Please enjoy. Friends, this week we received probably the prime compliment of all. A lady in great seriousness told me that her dog always refused to leave the room while I was on television. My program is probably the only one on television that has gone to the dogs. I understand that the dog was at St. Bernard. He's giving up his liquor license for Lent. Perhaps we can introduce this subject by telling you the story of someone in the South who was arraigned before the judge, and the judge said to him, Sam, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And he says, Judge, if you're going to put me under those limitations, I haven't a word to say. (laughs) 
And so there are people who believe there are no limitations, that the philosophy of self-expression is always right, and that repression of any kind and aestheticism, self-denial, mortification, all of these things end in a frustration of personality. Now, because the philosophy of self-expression is so very general in our land, may we analyze it and ask, is self-expression always right? In order to answer the question, one must begin by making a distinction. Now, self-expression can refer to one of two things. It can refer to something, for example, that is simple, or it can refer to something that is complex. A thing is simple, for example, when it produces only one effect. It is complex when it produces many effects. Now, self-expression is always right when it refers to something simple. For example, a bed bug has a perfect right to self-expression. <laughs> so as a flea. So as fire. So as water. So as ice. When you get into something that is complex, and therefore capable of producing several effects, well, self-expression may not always be right. It may sometimes be wrong. Now, let us take some examples of complex thing. For example, is a locomotive more self-expressive when it is on the track or when it is off the track? Is a razor more self-expressive when it shaves the beard or when it cuts the face? Or take a, a cold, a common cold. Now, many people have colds, and you are asked, how is your cold? You say, oh, my cold is terrible. No, the cold is a cold may not be terrible. The cold is a cold may be very good. You may be terrible as a result of the cold. Because inasmuch as you have the cold now, we're dealing with a certain amount of complexity. And I can imagine very well a doctor being called in, and you say, Doctor, will you please care for me? And the doctor says, You know, if I examine your, your flu germs, I want to tell you that you have a particularly fine culture of germs. I do not believe that in my life I have ever seen germs in better and more complete development than they are in you. <laughs> and being a scientist, I am in favor of self-expression. I therefore am going to develop this flu within you in order to study all of the effects. Oh, I know that, that you want me to cure you. You say that your health is more important. Now, that means I have to repress these germs. Do you realize that? To regard your health being more important? Well, Einstein says everything is relative. It's purely a question of relativity. For my part, I'm going to express my love of germs. Is it really that simple? Was the doctor right in being that self-expressive? Or were you right in insisting on your health? Now, inasmuch as we are dealing, therefore, with something complex, because we are dealing with man, man, man's complexity derives from the fact that he's composed of a body and a soul. Matter and spirit. And the two do not always get along together. They may sometimes get along together like many a husband and a wife in a home. Not so well. And 
If you concentrate all the time on the body, well, the soul may suffer. If you concentrate all the time on the soul, the body itself may suffer. For example, have you ever in your life known an athlete, a great athlete who was also a specialist in mathematical calculus? Have you ever known, for example, a man who became an expert in Hittite civilization, whoever won the American Open Golf Championship? I heard of a college, incidentally, that uh, next year was going to have three football teams, one for offense, the other for defense, and the third to attend classes. <laughs> Did you ever know a very athletic girl who was strong enough to do indoor housework? Benjamin Franklin said he knew a man who developed his mind so very much that he knew the name of a horse in nine languages, but he bought a cow to ride. <laughs> it's impossible for us to concentrate on one without the other suffering to some extent. It has been said, you know, that if a priest plays golf under 80, score of 80, there's something wrong with his priesthood. <laughs> If he plays above 80, there's something wrong with his golf. <laughs> now, inasmuch as we are very complex, we are to some extent like a man on a teeter-totter. Long time since I've drawn a man for you, and I've not improved one bit in four years. <laughs> not a particle. Now, it happens that when, for example, a man represses his love of self, that his sense of solidarity and community goes up. Many a wife has said, for example, of a drinking husband, he's so wonderful when he doesn't drink. So if he represses drink, there's an elevation of his home life. Take, for example, going to a picnic. You repress the ants, you've got a good picnic. Who was it that said, uh, denied that ants were the busiest creatures in the world and the hardest workers? He said they weren't hard workers at all because he always saw them at picnics. If we repress, therefore, the flesh, it follows that the spirit is going to be elevated. I believe, for example, that every single person in the world has actually got has just so much energy. Now, not everybody has the same amount of energy. Some have tremendous powers. And if these powers go in the direction of evil, they're going to do a great deal of harm in the world. If they go in the direction of good, they will be benefactions to humanity. Now, let us take, for example, a person who has, say, um, oh, not very much energy, say... Ten ergs of energy. There's ten ergs of energy. And he goes in the direction of virtue. Well, suppose he turned around and went in the direction of vice. How vicious would he be? The chances are he'd be just about that vicious. I'll take a person who has much more energy. That particular person goes in the direction of virtue, produces a great quantity of it. 
that person went in the direction of vice, you would indeed be very vicious. There, I believe, is the great difference between Lenin and St. Francis. I mean Lenin who introduced communism into Russia. If Lenin had gone in the direction of virtue instead of hate, violence, and revolution, he would have been a St. Francis of Assisi. And if a St. Francis of Assisi had gone the same direction of Lenin, he would have been a Lenin. Almighty God can deal with people who have a great deal of force and passion. That was one of the reasons, I think, why he loved Paul. Paul could hate. Not simply because Paul could hate, he had a tremendous capacity for love. The passion of Mary Magdalene was never killed. The passion of Mary Magdalene was just simply turned into another direction. And very fittingly, therefore, she's been called the 13th Apostle. The 13th Apostle simply because she has done so very much good by turning all of this energy around. The little flower... Now, the little flower is not LaGuardia. <laughs> the little flower was the saint. Saint Teresa. Saint Teresa said that if she had... Uh, followed her passions and had not in some way repressed that which was evil within her and had not responded to God's grace, she probably would have been one of the most evil women who ever lived. That's easy enough to understand. In other words, you never have a self-expression of something without a repression of something else. You never have a repression without a self-expression. That's why it's ridiculous to say of complex beings that self-expression is always right. You put heat into a room, you repress the cold. Elevate yourself in the direction of goodness, you must depress vice. There must be some kind of, of asceticism and mortification and self-discipline. When then is, is self-expression right? Well, self-expression is right when it is directed to that which is the highest in our being. For example, when the mind is directed to truth, when the will is directed to goodness, when the body is more important than the raiment, the whole being is directed to God, where the personality is also directed to its duty. And self-expression is always to be praised. And then... It aids in what is called self-possession. Otherwise, we are possessed by something that is outside of us. And that is why, incidentally, our blessed Lord said, If your eye scandalizes you, pluck it out and cast it away. If your hand scandalizes you, cut it off. And cast it away. It was not that our blessed Lord recommended an incomplete body. But rather he said sometimes that which is lower 
and base will stand in the way of that which is higher. And just as a ship in a storm at sea must be prepared to sacrifice its cargo, so too we must be prepared to sacrifice the lower things in order to possess the higher. That is why all of our games are made of obstacles. Do you not think it would be far much easier, for example, for a pole vaulter to run under the pole instead of going over it on a pole? <laughs> Wouldn't it be much easier for basketball players if the baskets were down about six feet? <laughs> Take, for example, golf. There's rough, and then the sand traps. The sand traps. I remember some years ago... I was in the Sahara Desert, a great expanse of sand. And the guide said to me, he said, do you know what that is? I said, sure, I know what it is. But where's the green? <laughs> that was the only part of the golf course I knew. <laughs> All right, now we've been saying that in order to express the best of our personality, we must in some way mortify that which is lower. Maybe objective. Then you're opposed to pleasure. Then we are not to have a good time. Then the long face is recommended. Then you pervert life. It may be objective. And you begin to take a pleasure, really a pleasure in giving yourself pain. Is that true? No, those who make that statement, first of all, they do not understand what real asceticism, mortification, self-discipline are. Remember that our blessed Lord said, when you fast, wear not a long face. Anoint your head. Wash your face. Appear to men not too fast. It is also worth observing, and this is interesting. Suppose I just ask you the question. Can you ever recall in the gospel where our blessed Lord ever sang? Now he came on earth primarily to die to offer himself for the sins of the world. When did he sing? The night that he went out to his death. It was the only time he ever sang a song. Was that denying pleasure? Christian asceticism is not the same as the oriental asceticism that sits on spikes and walks on fire? Why? Because that type of asceticism considers mortification and pain as an end in itself. It is not an end in itself. And if you make it an end in itself, you are perverting it. God takes no glory in pain as pain. And mortification is mortification. What is the inspiration of it then if it is not just the seeking of 
of self-restraint for the purposes of self-restraint. Well, the reason for all asceticism and mortification is love. Love. What a man loves is always the measure of his happiness. No man ever made an affirmation of love without at the same time making a negation of something else. When we love something, we are willing to dispense with all that stands in the way of that which we love. That is why, for example, a man who loves vice cannot bear the talk of religion. His love is elsewhere. The man who loves virtue, repelled by vice, See how many lives are changed when a new love comes into, into them. For example, a baby in a home. Look at all the sacrifice the baby inspires. Mother and father, a husband and wife would certainly never get up at three o'clock in the morning just for the fun of it. <laughs> and maybe it is the first time that Maybe the husband ever got up at three o'clock in the morning for the sake of a bottle, but he gets up. <laughs> then they stay at home at nights. They deny themselves certain clothes and even food in order that this new life of theirs may prosper. It was love that inspired the sacrifice. When a man loves a woman, he gives her a ring of gold. Why? It represents a sacrifice. The day that men forget that love is not synonymous with sacrifice, they will ask, what kind of a cruel and ruthless creature was that woman to have asked for a ring of gold instead of tin? It's the day that men forget that love is synonymous with sacrifice, they will ask, what kind of a God is it that asks for mortification and self-denial? When young people are in love, one will ask the other, do you like me in red? Maybe the girl will say to the boy, the boy will say to the girl, how do you like my hair? Do you like it when I have my hair standing on end like frills upon the fretful porcupine? <laughs> Would you rather have my hair brushed back? Why? Simply because one wishes to satisfy love. Now take, for example, a... Dieting and fasting. What's the difference between dieting and fasting? You lose 20 pounds either way. <laughs> Materially, there's no difference. You diet simply because you love your body. You fast because you love your soul. That's the only difference. The only way, therefore, we can show love of God is simply by, by getting rid of those things that weigh us down and prevent the flight to God. Why not, therefore, for example, and season of Lent rolls around, we'll give up the cocktail. Send me the 50 cents now. Send it to the poor of India. That's a good idea. Give up one package of cigarettes. Give up one package of cigarettes a week. Send me the 25 cents now. Send it to 80,000 of our lepers that we're caring for. Just give up one movie a week. Now send it to some of the refugees in Vietnam. And then you'll show a certain amount of love. This is the world problem, actually. I'm making it very simple. 
But the difference between the civilization of the West and the civilization of the East is this. This is our Western civilization. We have a love without sacrifice, without self-restraint, without any mortification. Communism, on the contrary, is a sacrifice without love. A love without sacrifice is not. A love without sacrifice is sentimentalism, romanticism. It is softness. It is the rottening of our nation. What is a sacrifice without love? It is violence. It is tyranny. It is hate. It is the totalitarian state. We have to beware of this. Reminding ourselves of what Toynbee said, that of 19 civilizations that have perished from the beginning of the world until the present time, 16 have perished from within. They died of softness. It could very well be that in a struggle just on the natural order alone, that Russia might be stronger because it believes in discipline, believes in sacrifice, believes in a certain amount of negation, self-negation in order to attain its end. But that must not be so. And that will not be so, provided we know, we who know something about the cross in our civilization, will introduce self-discipline, mortification, self-restraint in our home, in our nation, in our schools, that we may bring peace to a tortured world. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, you can see how Archbishop Sheen uh, just captivated audiences uh, week in and week out, and how millions of people would love to hear uh, his charming uh, teaching. And I say charming in the way that he has a way of, you know, asking us to do difficult things, uh, but with love, uh, you can see in that message, he was saying, you know, why don't you give up something, uh, especially during Lent, and take um, the money that you would save uh, on that um, pleasure, be it a movie, a drink, uh, and uh, give that money to the poor. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you think that's a novel idea, but really it's beautiful. And uh, do we do enough of that? So uh, again, something that we could write down to say, okay, let's be intentional this Lent. Let's do some sacrifices and take the money that we would save on some of these things that we give up and give it to the poor. And so uh, a great, easy way to do it. So uh, one little thing, and then it can turn into maybe even a larger thing. But um, you can see how Fulton Sheen was really saying uh, that uh, love is the key. And I did love how he talked about the difference between dieting and fasting. <laughs> I think we all we could lose a few pounds, and so the word diet is is on our minds. But um, if we would just turn it into fasting, um, you know, with a good intention, uh, it's a win-win. We lose some weight and we help uh, save a soul. So, uh, again, uh, I think I want to re-listen to this talk. I definitely do. And so uh, many of you know the uh, on-demand feature on a number of our platforms, and so you can find uh, this show, of course, on many of the, uh, the social media outlets, of course, Apple iTunes and 
Uh, the list seems to grow all the time. And of course, uh, the Radio Maria on-demand features. So uh, please uh, give this a listen again. All right, we're going to uh, now switch to the Catechism series where we're going to have Fulton Sheen uh, talk about uh, sin and penance. So uh, again, pretend that you're in Sunday school and uh, Archbishop Sheen is our teacher. And so we'll enjoy this lesson now on the topic of sin and penance. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In the last lesson, we spoke about sin in general and said that from the natural point of view, it was a violation of the law of God. Every sin has a triple effect. First of all, it divides a person from himself. Two, from his neighbor, and three, from God. First of all, from himself, because it makes the soul a kind of a battlefield. After a sin, one always feels like a menagerie full of wild beasts. Then sin also alienates a man from his neighbor. A man who cannot live with himself cannot live with his neighbor. That is why Cain, after his sin, asked, Am I my brother's keeper? Finally, it estranges us from God gives us a sense of, of loneliness. In some way, we dam up and block up the mind which ought to have communion with God. And the result is that all of the scum and the flotsam and jetsam of life are crowded back upon us. Now, sin is of two kinds. It can be mortal or venial. Here we speak of personal or actual sins. The difference between the two is very easy to understand. We speak of someone receiving a mortal wound in the physical order. Namely, it is one that kills him. If, however, he is not seriously wounded, that would be equivalent to a venial sin. Now, in a mortal sin, and for those who are in the supernatural order, grace is killed. Divine life is extinguished. That is why, in the supernatural order, a mortal sin is not just a violation of the law of God, it is a crucifixion. As we read in the epistle of the Hebrews, would they crucify the Son of God a second time? Sin is a second death because it's the death of divine life. It is very much like a tree being blasted with lightning. And when we fall into mortal sin, we lose all of the merits that we gained before, though we can regain them after a sacramental confession, just like a tree, can revive in the springtime after a very hard winter. A venial sin, we said, is one that does not kill the divine life, but just simply wounds it slightly. It is something like the tensions between friends that endanger the friendship, but never completely break it. But really, when one loves, one does not make so much a distinction between mortal and venial sin. It is quite wrong to say 
Oh, is it a mortal sin? If it is, I will not do it. If it is a venial sin, I will. Really, when you love someone, you never make any distinction between a mortal and venial sin. A husband, for example, does not make any distinction if he loves his wife of slapping her face, giving her a bloody nose, or biting her ear, or slitting her throat. All of them are quite inconceivable to him, simply because he loves her. Coming more precisely to the definition of original sin, in order that there be, or I mean mortal sin, not original, in order that there be a mortal sin, Three conditions must be fulfilled. One, there must be grievous or serious matter. Two, there must be serious and sufficient reflection. And three, there must be full consent of the will. First, there must be grievous apple. Uh, hmm, grievous apple. Grievous matter. The reason I said apple was because I was going to use the word apple as an illustration. For example, if you stole an apple from a neighbor's orchard and he had dozens and dozens of trees, that would not be grievous matter. But the grievous matter, you must not think, must always be a sin of commission. It can be a sin of omission, like not going to Mass on Sunday. And second, there must always be sufficient reflection, or full advertence to what one is doing. If, for example, you are visiting a neighbor, a friend, and you do sleepwalking, during the sleep, you break a Ming vase. I say vase because it's very expensive. It were, if it were cheap, we would call it a vase. There's no advertence to that. Therefore, there cannot be a mortal sin. If you eat meat on Friday, thinking it's Thursday, there's no mortal sin. I remember once going into the lunchroom at the Grand Central Station, and I said to the waiter that I wanted a hamburger. He said, the hamburger isn't good today. Well, I said, then give me a lamb chop. Oh, he said, I wouldn't recommend the lamb chop either. We're... Not very proud of these lamb chops. Then it suddenly dawned on me that he was trying to advise me that today was Friday. I had forgotten that it was. If I had been served the meat by someone who was not so kind to me, it would not have been a grievous sin. Then two persons who are suffering from manian phobias and the like lack full advertence. Finally, there must be full consent of the will. Fear and passion and force can diminish consent. I said diminish, but they do not destroy it. Now, it's not always easy to see whether to know whether or not one has fulfilled these three conditions, and the best way to do it in confession is to confess them as dubious and then ask the priest for his judgment.
In mortal sin, therefore, there is a double element, a turning to preachers and also a turning to God. In order to remedy all of the sins and to atone for all of the sins that have been committed since baptism, our blessed Lord has instituted the sacrament of Matter that we submit in that sacrament constitutes our sins. And we submit it to the judgment of the church. And then there is the other side of the sacrament, which is the words of the priest when he absolves us. He says, De indo, de in Diego te absolvo peccatus tuis, in omni patris et fidi et spiritus sancti. Amen. I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son. Amen. Our Lord, and not the church, instituted the sacrament. It did not exist in the Old Testament, though in the Old Testament there was an acknowledgement of sins before God. When Adam had eaten the forbidden fruit, God said to him, Hast thou eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God knew that he had. Why did he ask? In order to elicit a confession. God said to Cain, Where is thy brother? Tried again to elicit a confession from Cain. By the way, Cain refused to go to confession because he answered, Am I my brother's keeper? Through the Old Testament, too, every sinner had to bring a sin offering, which was burned in public as if to publicly admit his guilt. John the Baptist heard the confession of sins. Now, all of these were merely types of the sacrament to come, because forgiveness is possible only through the passion and merits and death of our blessed Lord. Our blessed Lord certainly had the power to forgive sins. And he did. Remember the man who was let down from the roof? The man who was sick of palsy? And our blessed Lord said to him, Thy sins are forgiven thee. And the Pharisees that were standing about said, Who can this be that he talks so blasphemously? Who can forgive sins but God only? They were right. Only God can forgive sin. But how did he do? He did it through a human nature. Now God can communicate that power to other human natures. If he communicates that power of forgiveness to his church, he conferred it on Peter when he gave him the power of keys And he said to Peter, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth is loosed in heaven. That power that was given to Peter alone is ratified in heaven. But our blessed Lord also gave to Peter and the apostles 
and extension of that power. Only to Peter were those words said, but to Peter and the apostles after the resurrection, our blessed Lord said, as he breathed on them, as the symbol of the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit. When you forgive men's sins, they are forgiven. When you hold them bound, they are bound. It's very clear here that our blessed Lord who was saying that all power was given to him, he now passes on to them. And the very words that he used to Peter and the eleven or to his church implied hearing confessions. Because if they did not know if they did not hear confessions, rather, how would they know which sins to forgive and which sins to retain? This is possible only because they could make a judgment on the material that was given. You may ask, well, why did our Lord institute a confession in the telling of sins? Why shouldn't we bury our head in our handkerchief? And tell God we're sorry. Try it with a traffic cop sometime. There's no test of sorrow if you are the judge. Just suppose we did that for every other court in the world. What would happen to justice in our country if all judges and courts and so forth when they had murderers and thieves and dope addicts before them, handed out Kleenex. Sin is pride. And the telling of it is a humiliation and therefore a reparation for the sin. Furthermore, in the natural order, does not a hurtful thing hurt more if it is shut up? A boil, a tooth that aches. We lance boils. Why? In order to release the pus. So our Lord said he would lance souls in order to release the evil that was in. And it does not nature also suggest that as soon as the stomach takes into itself any foreign substance, something that it cannot assimilate for the general good of the body, it throws it off. The soul, too, has that instinct. It wants to throw off everything that is harmful to it and its destiny. From another point of view, when a sin is avowed, it loses its tenacity. It is seen as it is in all of its horror. If we suppress a sin, and how many are doing that today, it comes out in complexes. There is a normal way for sin to come out, just as there is a very normal way for toothpaste to come out of a tube of toothpaste. Now, suppose you keep the cap off, and you squeeze and squeeze the tube. Where is the paste going to come out? You do not know. 
But in any case, it's going to be messy. Now, when we keep the cap on our soul and do not allow what is in us to come out as it normally should, when we suppress guilt, then it begins to come out in a thousand curious ways. And they are all abnormal. God was very merciful in instituting the Sabbath. But you may ask, very well, but why should I confess my sins to a priest? Maybe he's not as holy as I am. That could be very true. Because we hear the confession from many saints. But though you are holier than the priest, you have not more powers than the priest. You may be a far better citizen than the mayor. But he has powers which you do not have. Our blessed Lord gave the power to his church, did not give it to people. That is why a priest is the authorized minister of the sacrament. And furthermore, it is not the priest who absolves. A man cannot forgive sins. The priest in the sacrament is only the instrument of Christ. He gives and loans our Lord his voice. It is Christ who forgives, and the words of absolution means, I, Christ, absolve you for your sins. And furthermore, why be ashamed to confess the sins of the priest? He's bound by what is called the sigillum, or the seal of confession. Because he is only the instrument of our Lord. The sins that he hears are not his own. They are not a part of his knowledge. He merely, in this instance, was the ear of Christ. And he is under the... He may not divulge any sin that you confess, even under the pain of death. Suppose I kept money in a drawer here in my desk. And every day, somebody came in and stole some money out of the drawer. Then that person came to confession to me. I could tell that person to return the money. Because there must always be a, uh, a validation of that which was wrong. But because I learned something in the confession. Namely, that that person stole out of my desk. I would never again be allowed to lock the door of that desk. None of your sins will ever be told. Nor can we even speak to you about them outside of confession. If you, for example, come in and say that you stole money, I could not go up to you afterwards and say, Oh, say, remember you told me about the money that you stole from that pickle factory? Did you ever return it? That information is not Then another reason for confessing sins to a priest is this. No sin is individual. It hurts neighbor. And if we belong to the mystical body of Christ, it in some way diminishes the charity of the mystical body of Christ. Every sin hurts the church. And because, therefore, every sin 
in some way involves the mystical body of Christ, it is fitting and becoming that a representative of the mystical body of Christ restore you again to its unity and to its fellowship. In the early church, even the penances were published. In order to indicate that there was in some way And in a very serious way, an injury done to the kahal, the mystical body of Christ, the church. Now let us come into the actual practice of confession. Before you go into the box, you examine your conscience. When you examine your conscience, you begin with the prayer to the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. Remember that it is only in the face of God, and in particular for the crucifix, that we discover our true condition. We judge ourselves not by our own standards, nor by public opinion, simply by the standards of God himself. Now you may examine your conscience according to the commandments, which is not always the best way because it reduces our Christian life to cold duties and perhaps to become legalistic and very calculating. We could examine our conscience in the light of virtue, but also in the light of the seven capital sins. In any case, we have to examine our sins according to their number, their kind, and their circumstances. This is a story, and it's only, only a story. One day, a group of lumberjacks of Canada came to confession. They had not been to confession in about ten years or more. They all lined outside of the box, one after the other. The first one went in. He had not examined his conscience. So he said to the priest, Father, I've committed every sin a man can commit. The priest asked, Did you ever commit murder? No, he said, I did not. That is one sin I never committed. Well, said the priest, Now you go outside of the box and examine your conscience again. Number, kind, and the circumstances of sin. As he went out of the box, he saw the long line of lumberjacks outside, and he said to them, No use tonight, boys, just hearing murder cases. Then, too, when you confess sins, you never involve any other person. You cannot, for example, say, I was angry. But you ought to know my wife. What a lazy old gossip. Evidently, such a confession would not be sincere. Now we go into the box. 
and begin the confession. As soon as we go in, kneel down, we bless ourselves and say, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Then we state how long it has been since our last confession. It has been three weeks, it has been two weeks, it has been a month, it has been a year, it has been any definite period of time. Suppose now we will have someone who has not been to confession in 50 years. Suppose he's 80 years old. Now what kind of a confession can he make? He cannot remember all of the, the number of sins, the like. Well, his confession might be something like this. You'll notice how brief it is. Father, it has been 50 years since I last went to confession. During 20 years of my life, I never went to Mass. I never frequented the sacraments. I never made my Easter duty. I did not fast. Many times a day, I took in the name of God falsely. I used it falsely. I also took false oaths in court about five times. I was disobedient in a very serious way to civil authority twice. I assisted at abortion twice. I murdered once. I was an alcoholic for ten years. I had immodest thoughts, certainly every day for about thirty years. Immodest actions with myself many times for about ten years. While living with my first wife, I was guilty of adultery many, many times, certainly over a period of three years. While my first wife was living, I married again, so I lived in adultery for about five years. She is now dead. During this time in business, I cut corners, I underpaid my employees, I thought only about making money. I never gave to any charity, except when I was forced to by the public shame. I particularly regret once refusing to send a hundred dollars to the Holy Father for missions of the world. And I had plenty of money. I gave myself over to an excessive spirit of amusement, theaters, dinners, parties. I can never recall once in my life ever having helped anyone in distress. I never gave up my evenings once to help the church. I completely neglected my wife as regards esteem and affection. I never sent my children to a religious school. I let them do as I please, they pleased. And I became angry at them for their impiety. And now I am suffering from that, for these and all the sins of my past life, those which I do not remember, but as God sees them, I ask the pardon of God and you, Father. That is a confession of a man away about to.
Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that uh, Sunday school uh, class with uh, Archbishop Sheen. And uh, you can see how he's pleading with us to have a good uh, examination of conscience and a good holy confession. Uh, But especially uh, as Lent approaches, let us take this seriously, that uh, we need to confess. We need to get right with God. And so, uh, again, Fulton Sheen will help us. And uh, as I said to you earlier in the program, uh, don't be afraid to re-listen to uh, this talk and other talks. Um, Again, you can find us, uh, just uh, Google Bishop Sheen Presents, and you'll find a number of uh, archive programs. Uh, Many of the Radio Maria family websites have uh, our on-demand section. And so, uh, and you can always visit uh, my website at bishopsheentoday.com and you can find a number of old uh, radio archives there. Uh, I think we have shows going back to the year 2012, if I'm not mistaken. So lots of Archbishop Sheen. My dear friends, our hour has come to a close, and so I may I continue to ask you to pray for me, and please know that I will pray for you. And so until next time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.